This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with the celebrated typeface designer Eric Spiekermann about why numbers are harder to design than letters, about how his company gets and gets rid of clients, and about the changing landscape of brands. With social media and all the rest of it, companies don't really control their brands anymore. It's very, very difficult. The brand is what people make of it. Here's Debbie Melman. If you've driven in a Volkswagen lately or read The Economist, then you are already familiar with our next guest. Eric Spiekermann is the typographer behind the modern classics FF Meta and ITC Officina. And he's also the information architect behind some incredibly complex transportation networks. His work is clean and maybe even a little Teutonic looking, but it's also playful and you might say it has attitude. Spiegelmann's flown in from Germany to judge the 2012 Type Directors Club typeface design competition, and having him here in New York City is a special treat. Eric, welcome to Design Matters. Hi, nice to be here so far. Good. (laughs) Let's hope it stays that way. So I understand that you have a bookshelf in your house that is so high, you use a harness in order to be able to reach the books at the tippy top. Really? A harness? Yeah, that sounds like bad planning, doesn't it? No, but it was intentional. We have two floors and they don't quite, the seating of the one doesn't quite go all the way. So there's a bit of airspace above the one on the desk. And so obviously there's bookshelves because you can never have enough bookshelves. Half of my books are sitting in cellars and warehouses anyway. And we tried all sorts of ladders and things, and it, it never quite worked because ladders take space, and then you're, you're like too far away and you're bound to fall. So we got this uh, climber harness, and I have a little remote control that I sit there and go up and down. It looks ridiculous, but it actually works. And the best thing is being halfway up there in midair, and, and you always find books that you weren't looking for, and then you always end up reading them for two hours. Sitting so up there it's brilliant. M- midair in yeah. the harness. I think it's a bit of a feeling that kids used to have when we used to have tree houses and stuff. Yes. You know, you're away from it all. Nobody can get to you, except when you drop the remote, then it becomes a little embarrassing, but it oh. hasn't happened so far. So on the front face page of your blog, you declare that you have been suffering from typomania all your life, a sickness that is incurable but not lethal. And your blog reflects the fact that you see most things from a typographic perspective. So two questions here. First, what is typomania, and how are you suffering from it? Well, typomania, I guess, as, as the name would suggest, is the, is the manic involvement with anything typographic. Manic. That's mania. Manic yes. meaning you, you can't help yourself. Okay. It's a birth defect. Uh, these days they have new names for it. They call it attention deficit disorder, whatever. I probably had it as, as a child, but it hadn't been invented yet. So I was premature with that sickness. So that's the, the affliction that I suffer from. Uh, what also happens is that... Um, I can't read anything unless I've identified what typeface it's set in, which is these days getting a little difficult because we have, what, a few hundred thousand typefaces on the market, out of which maybe, I don't know, a few hundred get used on a daily basis. So now and again, I will run across something that I would like to read, and then I thought, oh, can't, what is this blasted typeface? And I would spend hours researching it. Meanwhile, I've forgotten why I wanted to read this in the first <laughs> place. So it is rather distracting, but it does give me the one advantage that I have a fairly encyclopedic knowledge of type that's out there. Now, when was the last time you were stumped by a typeface that you encountered, and what did the typeface end up being? 
I can't remember, but uh, I know it happens now and again, and, and I'm really, really, really scared because I think, oh my God, you know, I'm now finally and officially old, which I will be by the end of May uh, because I'm, I'm, I'll be 65, so I will be officially old. And um, it's is that kind the, of, is that the age? That's the cutoff. Well, isn't that when most people get well? It, it, in Europe, this is when you retire on government money. In my case, I don't because I'm freelance, so I never. My pension is like I think 120 euros. So I could start smoking again or something with that money, but you can't survive on it. So um, I do know that now and again, I think it might have even been seen that I'm here, the New York Times magazine, because they, they keep using new stuff. And usually I know it because Christian Schwartz designed it, and he always sends me stuff before he, before it's published. But I know recently I looked at something, and I wasn't quite sure what it was, and then I had to do a little bit of rummaging, not in my brain, but in my books or on some websites, and I found it, and I was very relieved. But it happens. I'm also getting older in the sense of I'm getting more mature. Sometimes I read something, and I don't know what it's set in, and it doesn't worry me anymore. So maybe I'm on the way to become a healthy person. Now, I find it really interesting to imagine you going through books or archives to identify what a typeface is. If you don't understand a word, you can look in the dictionary. There's now facial recognition on Google. If you don't know what a typeface is... Where do you go to find it? Where would you even begin to start looking? Yeah, that's that's difficult because there is no such thing as classification. Right. Uh, these days, more often than not, I would ask somebody else because <laughs> there's all these kids out there. Now, luckily, I mean, you know, 30 years ago, I was the only weirdo that, that did this. And there wasn't so much to identify, so it was easier. These days, it's become more difficult, but there's so many cool kids out there in their, in their 20s who are in this type world, because everybody's a type designer now. So I can just send it to somebody, and, you know, I'll get an answer back in about 25 seconds, because these kids are way nerdier than I ever would have been. In addition to the way that you are, that you have an encyclopedic knowledge about typography, are you also interested in the evolution of the way humans communicate? Well, obviously. I mean, that's what I do for a living, right? So, I mean, talk to me, if you can, a little bit about how humans have gotten to this point in our evolution in using visual language in creating a series of symbols that allow us to be able to communicate in the way that we do. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary if you think about it just from a mammalian perspective. Well, as, as you probably know, seeing that you're talking about human history, we, we are still very much the, the early humans that, that used to um, you know, run the, the steppes of uh, southern Africa or whatever. We very much hunt and gather and we're very much afraid of new things. That's why we don't like novelties. Yes. We're afraid of them because every novelty is a threat. We are still very primitive animals when it comes to that. So the fact that we've actually mastered the alphabet is, to me is still very, very um, surprising. And as you also know, that the history of, of writing, the history of written communication is a history of commerce. People started writing numbers or rather amounts. You know, I give you two sheep, you give me one cow. Or I give you two camels, you give me four wives or whatever, you know, or, or, or wheat or oil. That's how we started. And um, I find it interesting that when it comes to it, that our, our brain still very much functions in that, that, that very, very primitive way. In other words, we, we see something before we read it. We feel something before we read it. And that is, in fact, the, the power of, dare I say, branding or typography, that you see something and before you've even deciphered it, you have an impression of it. It goes into the back of your brain, not your conscious. Right, it's um, instant. You know, you see a cowboy on a horse and it's, you, say, you think Marlboro, even if you haven't smoked in decades. The visual mind is just as subliminal as the, uh, as the hearing is. You know, you hear that uh, elevator music or music in a department store. It works even though you don't listen to it. 
because you don't listen to it. And that's why typography works, because you're not aware of it. It creeps into you. Before you know it, you've received the message, here, I am whatever, Marlboro or you know, whatever brand. And you've, you've either defended against it because you don't like it for whatever reason, or you react to it. And we, of course, when we design brands, we exploit that or we use that. Now, I want to ask you about numbers. You said that anybody can design letters, but numbers are hard. Why why is that? Well, it's a different logic. The first thing is that um, there is a school of thought that says, mainly the the Dutch school or some here, that um, type still, still follows handwriting. To an extent, that's true. Even Gutenberg's Bible was, you know, basically forging the, 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 what the scribes had done before because they got a lot of money for it, even though that was, like, not really handwriting. It was certainly wasn't cursive joint letters, as we call them. But there's this sort of rhythm in, in, in characters that we respond to and the rhythm that comes the up and down that happens when we, we use a, a pen or, or, or whatever. Numbers you don't connect. There's no cursive numbers. Numbers are because they're Indian, Arab. They come from a totally different background. They don't come from... Uh, Greek, Phoenician, Roman—you know this this continuous history. They come from somewhere totally else. There are there's no relationship, and they're bitches. I mean, a four is a bitch. To do this this the zigzag and then the the downstroke. Do you close the the, the the triangle at the top or don't you? Is it still a four if the the stroke doesn't go across? Does a seven have to have a cross stroke to separate from the one? Does the one have a top serif or a bottom serif? There is not much leeway. And it's still, and, and then sometimes they have to have the same width, so that the poor little one has to be the same width as the fat eight, um, you know, which is all as the same bingo, you know, one fat lady wobble wobble in England, you know, the eight and and the stuff, and then the nine and the six are not the same, but they kind of look the same, and the zero has to look different from a cap O. It's a bitch. They're really difficult, and I love that challenge, and and I I just really like and I I curse, and I love doing numbers because they are a total challenge. And is your favorite number of all still the number two in Accidents Grotesque yes. Light? Yes, and that's that's the bitches of them all. I mean, to have this, it looks like a swan, right? Right. The swan neck, With it goes neck. down, and then it don't, you know, Helvetica goes back in a curve like a, like a reverse S. That's kind of easy, cheating. But the Accidents Grotesque ones goes all the way down, and then it has this long slope, like a ski slope, and it finds that, that big slab at the bottom. And to make that look elegant and not too heavy... Oh, you spent hours doing this. And you go back in the next morning and think, this totally sucks. And you start over. And I don't know how, how many hours I've spent on doing tours. So I understand that you had a little printing press. I when, have a little printing press. Well, when you were a little boy, you had a little printing press mm-hmm. as well. You taught yourself to set type when you were 12. And years later, when you went to university to study art history, you made a living as a letterpress printer and hot metal typesetter. Mm-hmm. And so is your favorite typeface or is one of your favorite typefaces still, um, I hope I get this right, Reklameschrift? Reklameschrift Block, it's called. Yeah, just block for you and me. Yeah, because that was basically what I had. And uh, it is like your first love, you know. You never forget your first kiss or your first typeface, in my case. Or the, probably maybe the first book you read, the first record you ever bought. Well, people used to buy records. I remember the first record I bought. What was it? It was The Battle of New Orleans by Lonnie Donegan. But, you know, I carried home the little single play. And at the time, there was like two months uh, pocket money. It was a major achievement. What about your first book? What was the first book you ever read? I only know the first book I ever read professionally because my father gave it me. And I think I was 15. In fact, I... I, I, I wrote about this recently on some blog or other here in, in the States, that it was a book about printing and, and making print. Oh, yes, my, on designer and books. Yeah, because my yeah. father realized that I was obviously beyond uh, help. So instead of you know avoiding it or, or getting me out of it, he got me into it deeper by giving me this book, which has you know, made my affliction greater because then I realized, oh, my God, I'm not the only person who likes this stuff. There are other people out there, and it's actually a profession. 
Because I remember that when I was, what, 16, 17, I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to work with language. And I still, I guess these days, I write more than I do anything else anyway. But you're still working with language. Yes. Well, language is my interest. And that's why to be a, a typographer and a type designer, I would never design anything that I, I haven't read. And that's why I, I couldn't design anything in Arabic or, I mean, I did a Hebrew typeface recently, or rather somebody else did a Hebrew typeface, one of mine, and I sort of helped correcting it. But I felt like an awful fool because I couldn't read it. I have no idea what it says. You could have said, you know, if you read this, you're an idiot, like we used to put on people's backs at school. So it was, it was a little weird. And I, I don't like designing things in languages I don't read. Uh, even, like, for example, if I design a typeface, I don't like doing the Cyrillic pop because I can, I can read the letters, but I have no idea. I can't read Russian or Bulgarian or whatever. So I, I don't like doing that. I, can, I don't mind doing Greek because I can read Greek. I mean, I'm, I'm not a fluent Greek speaker, but I learned it at school. So I, I know what the words say. So I, I hate designing stuff that I don't understand. And I actually think, and I tell my students that, don't ever, ever, ever design anything that you haven't understood because as a designer, you're a translator. You take whatever content there is and give it form. So you translate it from one medium to the other, right? From just content, from just whatever words into visual language. And if you don't understand what you're doing, how can you possibly do it justice? I was really moved by a piece on your blog that you wrote about going to Japan and how difficult it was for you to be there because you couldn't, you didn't understand where you were, what you were reading and, and what anything meant around you. And I had the same experience. I found it very disconcerting. Yeah. I didn't find it exciting at all. I mean, it was beautiful to be able to perceive it, but it was very, very um, nerve wracking because I didn't know if I was reading something that said, you know, stay out, poison ahead or, or welcome, we love you. I found it to be really overwhelming how much I realized I depend mm. on what I read to be able to guide me in what I do. Well, I found that sobering and scary at first, but I must admit, after a couple of days, I started liking it because then I, I, I started discovering the patterns because, you know, design is all about pattern recognition. You realize this pattern is this and that's repeated there. And then you start realizing, well, this thing means exit. Uh, you don't know what the word says, but then you start recognizing patterns and you see how foreign words are transcribed because they have the English underneath them. And after weeks or so, I'm not saying I could read Japanese, but I could find my way. I couldn't use my old-fashioned boring tools that I used so well. I had to learn new ones. And that was quite a nice experience. Now, you talked about falling in love with Reklamaschrift. And I'm wondering what it's like to fall in love with the typeface. How does that happen? At the time, I didn't have that feeling. I didn't know. it was That was all there was. You know, basically, you give somebody a set of Lego bricks and you don't fall in love with them. That's all you have. And basically, that's all I have. And But then looking back up later when my, my whole printing press and stuff all burned down in 97. How? 77, How sorry. did that happen? I was away on vacation. I just moved all the stuff from Berlin to London. And um, we unloaded the stuff in a railway arch in, in, in uh, Notting Hill in London. And then went away on vacation. And next door was some guys working on old cars. So they were welding away. And apparently they'd been welding on some car and uh, put the carpet back on the weld and then went home. And then the fire started over the weekend, of course. And by Monday morning, it was a major fire that was in the papers in London. And we came back from vacation. And uh, how, do you, how do you, I mean, you come home from vacation and your and house is burned And the guy comes over down. and said, I, well, now it was the workshop. The uh, workshop over. is burned And the down. guy comes over and says, I've got to tell you something. And I do remember that he said, like they always do, better sit down, you know. I thought, oh, shit, you know, somebody's sick or whatever. And I said, your workshop. And I said, oh, yeah, how's it doing? He said, it is no more. Oh, my God. Well, I thought he was done a sort of Monty Python sketch in me, you know, workshops no more. It's going to meet its maker sort of thing. And I thought it was very funny. And that was true. Punked, yeah. Yeah. And um, so I went over there and I have some photographs. Because I, I, I do remember that feeling. You walk in there and think, okay, this is one phase of my life finish. I was, I was 30 and a bit. 
And I thought, well, this is it. Better think of something else. It was, it was two floors, and the, 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 the type was on top, the lead, and the machines were below, and the floor had burned down, and all the type had fallen down and formed this cone, which was like three meters or ten feet for you tall, literally a cone of molten metal. And I thought, okay, well, you know, scrap at the time was like, whatever, $3.50 a kilo, two pounds for you, and... Um, I thought, okay, I can get some money, and I called these crap dealers, and they said, okay, we come over, and I said, it must be three tons of stuff, so at least I get some money out of it, because of course it wasn't insured. I get that the next morning, the guy said at nine, I was there at nine, the, the cone had gone, so the asshole had gone there, maybe at seven, and stolen my scrap metal. Oh, no. So I thought, this is, you know, somebody, Providence, God, whoever runs these things, had said, you know, you are done printing, you are now a graphic designer, because a graphic designer needs no, no means of production, all you need is a pencil and a brain. So I became a graphic designer overnight, without any qualifications, by the way. So oh, I am totally and that, is that when you Is that when you started Meta? Meta was uh, two years later, yes. So from what I understand, after you graduated university, it was 1972, then you freelanced till 79? I didn't 79? graduate. No, I, I, I tell you what, how it happened. I, while I was going to school between 16 and 19, I, I did an apprenticeship at a printer's in the afternoon. I come home from school at 2. We only have half-day school in Germany, so school finished at 1-ish. So at 3 o'clock my shift started. I did a late shift till 8 o'clock at night, and I, I apprenticed as a typesetter and a printer. And then I went to university and studied history of art, and then I changed over to architectural history. And then I had a family, and I had a you know, la-di-la and a son and stuff, so I never finished that either. So I have not one qualification. I have never passed an exam in my life, except well. graduating from school, I guess, high school. But... So I am really totally and utterly unqualified. I shouldn't be teaching those kids. I don't think any of your students mind. No. Um, so you freelanced for several years before you started Meta Design, and then from Meta you did Font Shop, and now you have your own company. So you've actually never technically worked for anybody. You've never been an employee of anybody. I was for six weeks. I ran a print shop in Berlin in '73, and that was it. Because the boss was such an idiot, he was away on vacation, and I took over the shop, and uh, we we doubled the turnover while he was away on vacation. So I thought, well, if this is what it takes to be a boss, I can do that myself. So I've been a boss ever since. And now your company's name is Eden Spiekermann. Mm-hmm. Is the Eden a German reference, or is Eden no, the, the biblical n- reference? Neither. The uh, Dutch company that we merged with three years ago, they were called Eden. And you so, have 60 people. In Berlin, we have, I don't know, 56. It's probably 90 with the Dutch. So that, they call themselves Eden. That's all I'm you've, saying. You've you got know, to so. get a lot of business to pay all those people. That's yeah, I incredible. Think about it. I know. It's scary. That's, that's a big payroll. I think it's, you like, got on... it's like 10,000 a day or something. No, no, it's more than that. 20,000 a day. So do you still, are you still very actively involved in getting the business and procuring the business and you know what, making? I've, I've never been actively involved in doing that. It just happens. I've been in this business now for what, 40 45 years, give and take. And over time, I found out that the way I get business is by not getting business. It's just by knowing people. You know, you start grabbing somebody on the first date. You just don't do that. You just play it cool. You know, you go home on your own sort of thing. And that's basically what I do with potential clients. You know, and if they're interesting people and they're like me and I like them, then over time, and it's, some, it's taken 10 years sometimes. I mean, I got calls from people who, I, who said, oh, I am what's his name? And I said, huh? Yeah. Oh, you know, I was in that lecture, and that was like 6,000, no, not a couple hundred people maybe. <laughs> you know, I was in the second row, and I shook your hand afterwards. I said, okay, oh, you're that guy, right? Lying, you know. And, uh, and by the way, now I run the corporate design department. This actually happened at Audi. The guy called in 94. It was at, in some class that I did, a day course that I did once in some godforsaken faraway university in, in southern Germany. And he remembered me, and he called me, and we got the, you know, the biggest job ever out of that. So ever since I've known... 
that a you always meet twice you know the famous saying and you cannot not be nice to everybody because everybody might become your friend or your enemy or your client so i try to be as nice as possible to everybody which sometimes gets a little tedious but it it does come back Absolutely. Now, speaking of tedium, I watched you in the audience. I was the second person um, oh, in the second one? row okay. at the brand new conference in 2010 that Armin Witt and Brian e. Gomez Palacio put on. That was a nice, nice conference, wasn't it? It was a I great liked, conference, yeah. and and you, it was a, your presentation was a, a real tour de force. And I just watched it again, <laughs> as a matter of fact. And one of the things that you said, I, I thought was really interesting. I wanted to talk to you about it. You said the work is tedious, and you're talking about corporate design work. The work is tedious, and you don't win any design prizes with it and people get bored, but it trains you to listen to things that for us are terribly unimportant, but for our clients are very important. And I'm wondering how you manage to stay involved in work that you find tedious. What is it about that work that keeps you still active and, and interested and in, in doing it? Now, tedious and boring are, in my, in my mind, the two different things. It's not boring. Tedious it means you have to have a constant attention to every single detail. Normally, you know, I, like I said, my attention span goes down very quickly and of everybody else. You can't possibly spend two years doing style guides for one particular client project. No way. You, you go crazy. You go dumb and numb. So we have to change people around. But what I'm saying is that we are a service industry. I'm not an artist. I keep pointing that out. I'm a designer. I work for other people. I solve other people's problems, not my own. My, my personality comes into it, but I'm not an artist. I don't express myself. I have a style I have because I, you know, I am who I am because I've, I've been around for 65 years. But I do work for clients. It doesn't mean I'm a slave. But I do. if I take on a commission, a project, I will, at least metaphorically speaking, kill for those people. I will be very, very loyal. Otherwise, you know, why bother? If you find you're not loyal to your, with your client anymore, to your client anymore, it's time to get out. It's a relationship. And, you know, you men tend to... Stay in relationships way too long because we can't ever plug up the courage to say, let's go. Or we I've don't want to give up. Well, sometimes you try to rescue it. But I've, I've, I've recently given up a couple of clients, told them to go and get lost. And it was very, very liberating. Did that come from a confidence that you have with age or was it because no, you well, just whatever. got no, less tolerance? Realizing that if you carry on doing, you start losing money. Because basically, you know, a client calls... And everybody in the office sort of looks down on the desk, you know, goes to the toilet, is very busy suddenly, gets coffee and stuff. Nobody wants to talk to these guys. That's very much like getting a, a call from a, a girlfriend you're breaking up with or something. You just can't be bothered or you're afraid of it. And you realize then you think this relationship is broken. You can either mend it or if you try to mend it a few times. In this particular case, and I won't mention any names, the clients were just actually assholes. They insisted on all the presentations being PowerPoint, which already is near enough an insult. And then I said, oh, did you get this presentation? No. So wait a minute, but, you know, here it is, and I sent it. I never got So it turned out that, that some middle level in, at the client uh, took our presentation and sort of rejigged them, took them apart, copied, pasted shit. So we had never had any idea what the people who made the decision actually got. So I said, well, this is, you know, how can you work like this? So I called them, and then, of course, they were really disappointed. And then I, I remember sending a large fax with the word N-O, you know, as in no, <laughs> as in yet, as in nine, as in, you know, no. Saying, what about this fucking word don't you understand? Sorry about the expletive. And uh, then they got it. But it was liberating because everything in the said, oh, my God, you know, we were dreading having to work with these people anymore. Because clients also have to, they have certain duties, and it's not just paying. But where were we before, uh, before we got there? The tediousness, yes. It's changing a little because in the, um, through the 90s, maybe even until recently, corporate design programs were very much about controlling. 
a brand would, you know, say Audi, would work across the world. They would have a, a very similar image. They would be a little more sporty in Spain than, say, in Germany, a little more upmarket in the USA than they would be in, in Holland or whatever. But basically, it's the same. Obviously, you know, they're the same cars, the same people, have the same brand, just slightly different perception historically. And so you have to make sure that all their stuff, the, the voice they speak with, would be the same. Their literature would look the same in English as in Spanish as in Japanese. So it's all about controlling as it were, policing, giving them as many guidelines, templates, and some sort of tools to control it with, you know, whatever that was. We used to have seminars once a, once a year, bring everybody together from the world and sort of go over it and, and find out what works and what doesn't work. Now, these days, of course, with social media and all the rest of it, companies don't really control their brands anymore. It's very, very difficult. The brand is what people make of it. So you can give them guidelines, but, you know, the minute you publish them, they're out of date, just like a website is never finished. And it's, it's now our task to, to tell clients that we won't do a rollout. There is no rollout. The website is there and tomorrow is different and tomorrow is different again. There is not just thing as a finished website that we publish, like a book or a magazine. No way. And that's that at the moment is our challenge in corporate design, that the tediousness is still there. You still have all these elements. You have to define them to the smallest unit, increment, whatever, templates. But then how do you keep the essence of the brand out there without being able to control the mechanical elements? It's, it's a major, I don't have the answer. It's a major um, question that, that we're facing. You talked a little bit about the the tedium of working in corporate design and and how that's not fun, but life isn't always fun. That's one of the quotes from the conference. And then I, I read in another article that you were being interviewed in, that, and you, you declared that designing type is lonely and boring and that you sometimes feel like a glyph pusher. And, and so I was thinking about your life and I was thinking about, well, some of the corporate work is boring and here designing type is lonely and boring. And I'm wondering... Why do you love it so much? Because the result justifies the means. I'm also in, in a lucky position that I don't push glyphs anymore, hardly. I do sketches. I do really rough. I'm really bad digitally. I mean, I'm not up to date with the tools. The stuff I do, maybe a dozen or so characters are pretty crude technically, but they get the essence across. You know, it's like saying Pantone red. You know, you don't have to go and paint it. That's enough to, to communicate to, to certain people what, what I mean. They can look it up in the book. So I have glyph pushers. I have people who do the outlines. I have people who do the kerning, people who do the technical conversions and stuff, luckily. So I'm kind of like the art director, as you were, or the type director, which, which is, a, is a privilege. And I, I could do it, and I can still draw if it, if it comes to it. But like coding, you know, I can code, but I'm the world's slowest coder probably. But you know uh, how. I know how, so they can't bullshit me. That's, that's one thing. But if I sit down and do HTML, it's going to take forever and it's going to be crummy. So I can see them, you know, the kids, they stand over me and they look at me and they can, I can hear them roll their eyes. And I think, okay, you know, daddy is trying to show off with this coding. So, okay, <laughs> you know what I mean? Can I give it away again? Because if you look at my style sheets, they're kind of like, you know, clunky because I'm, I'm not into it. But I, 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 I don't like to ask anything of people that I'm not prepared to do myself. And, and that's, you know, I've done the tedium. I've spent weeks, months even, doing style sheets, doing corporate design manuals, writing single things, making sure every comma is there. And in the office, we make sure that people may do this for a while, but they know they're going to get out of it as long as they give that knowledge on to somebody else. So it's almost like a, you know, you have to pass through this um, to get the privilege of doing something else. Everybody who comes in has to learn that design is not about making posters or, or industrial children's books, which a lot of designers still think when they're in their early 20s, they think they're going to 
change the world by making posters against war, you know, which is, they think that's a courageous act. Yes, yeah, so uh, many wars have been stopped by posters. Absolutely. You know? That's why I'm saying, you know, congratulate you on this incredible courage to, to design a poster against AIDS. That's going to stop that evil tomorrow. Uh, so they've got to learn that, you know, this is not about this, that clients are not monsters, even though some of them are assholes. We have a very, a very easy rule. I don't employ assholes and I work for assholes, you know, and I'm very privileged and we all are very privileged. We pick the people that we work with. I go to work every morning with people that I like. When you started Fonshop, did you have any idea that the world was going to become as digitized as it has? Not to the extent, but obviously if I didn't, I I wouldn't have done that. Why? Because it was obvious. I didn't go to the States until 87. I was 40 years old, two days after my 40th birthday, because I thought, you know, America, I kind of knew from TV, you know, we were watching the Friends, phone. Friends, We were watching the yeah. phones and stuff, you know, and the streets of San Francisco and all this shit. So I thought, ah, America is a place where everybody finds a parking space. Because on TV, they always do, you know, they all roll up and they, they park. So I thought, America, I don't need to go there. You know, I had a godmother who emigrated after the war, and she sent me Maxwell coffee and stuff and jeans in the, in the, in the 50s, which was cool. So I had white socks with blue and red stripes and, and real American jeans, which was very cool in those days. Uh, so I, anyway, I, I went, and um, then I started getting consultancy job with Adobe and Apple and ITC and stuff. So I was very much in the type world, and I knew everybody. And I, I then started bringing fonts back home. I mean, literally dis- diskettes, because we didn't have them back in, in Europe, or certainly not in Germany. You know, of course, all my friends said, this is, I bought my first Mac in 85, so this was fairly, still fairly early, because like 87 people weren't really going, getting into it properly, but I was. So everybody said, you know, bring me this. So I, I used to sm- literally smuggle, you know, Palatino uh, bold back to Germany, and I was a big hero. And I thought, wait a minute, you know, if I keep doing this every time I'm over, and I used to come over four or five times a year, there's a business there. Uh, and it's digital, so, you know, it doesn't need a, a large warehouse. Um, the small diskettes, uh, there were physical diskettes at the time. And I know everybody in the business. So I called a few friends at, at Monotype, at Linotype, at uh, Berthold, at uh, IDC and um, Adobe. I said, look, I want to do this, do a distribution hadn't been done before, and I have no money. So they said, oh, fair enough. And I got two disks each of each typeface from all these people. That was our warehouse. And then the good thing about mail order is you get money straight away. This is up before PayPal, but up front. So somebody orders a, a font, and uh, they send you 120 marks, euros, dollars, whatever, and you don't have a cash flow problem. And that was it. That's how the business started. Because I knew when I bought my, f- when I saw my first Mac, which is in early '85, and I bought it shortly after that, this was going to change my world totally and utterly. Just like when I had my, the fire in my print shop, I realized that my life had changed, obviously. And this time, I, I saw this little Macintosh at Linotype in, in Germany, actually, and I held it up in my little hand. I thought, shit, you know, this is typesetting now. Forget all this other stuff. This, you know, you used to pay $300 just to get a line set somewhere, and then it was the wrong size, and you would go in the camera and shit. And I realized this was totally was going to change my life and everybody else's. So it was all very intuitive, and I was obviously right that this changed our, our existence as graphic designers. Now, in terms of what you're doing next. You've said that you've been pretty good in spotting trends and in even creating them. So tell us about what type of trend you might see in the future that designers should be aware of or know about. The one thing that's important for us in the, in the studio now is the fact that we work in much smaller steps than before. We, we use the Agile method not only in coding but also in, in normal d- design projects. In other words, we, we break it on in much smaller steps involve the client much sooner and make the client literally more than a partner. I mean, the client is involved. You don't spend, you know, weeks, months doing something and then taking it to the client hoping he's, he's going to like it. 
that is very, very scary. You can waste 60,000 or 120,000 in a couple of months. And then they say, oh, well, you know what? My wife doesn't like green and you're fucked. So we don't do this anymore. The, the steps become smaller and you involve them earlier. And the clients who don't want to be involved are under the category assholes. We don't want those clients anymore. You know, their role is to give us decent briefing, give us a good feedback and pay in the end. I don't know if you've, if you've read our manifest. That's one of the things yeah, you say. Yeah, the manifesto. And that certainly is important. You know, you've hired us to do something that you cannot do. Like, you know, if the doctor tells me my leg is broken, I'm not going to put my arm in plaster, right? Because he knows and he's got an x-ray for Christ's sake. I'm not double guess. That doesn't mean I, I won't double guess certain doctors because it's my body. But, you know, it's, it's a little different with a piece of graphic design, which after all is, is, is quite harmless when it comes to the world at large. So that's one thing, you know, being a little more confident. Like we stopped doing pitches, free pitches a couple of years back. And you, you don't do spec work. And people are, are talking about it now. Are you are the guys that don't do spec work. You say, bloody right, we don't. Correct. Because it doesn't work. I why, can't. why don't you think it I mean, I feel like I know why it works, but why do you feel like it doesn't work? Because it's no shared responsibility. And the client just farms it out to, you know, half a dozen people. Oh, give me some ideas. Yeah, they're not taking it seriously. I'm not going to go to three restaurants and they end up saying, you know, I didn't really like your food. I'm not going to pay any of you. Hello, I'd be in prison, quite rightly. No way. No, they've got to make up their minds. We do offer something. You can't just say no. You can say no, but. We won't do free pitches. We, we have a few conditions. One of them is we speak to the people that ultimately make the decision, not some middleman. If the CEO call, makes the calls, we need to speak to the CEO. And we also, the other condition is if the client doesn't come and see us, we also don't want to work for them. You know, it's again like going to your doctor. You're not having the diagnosis on the phone. You want to go and see the man or the woman and, and see how they work and what, what the place looks like. So I, I, that's another demand we make. If they said, well, we haven't got time to come and see you. Well, I said, then you haven't got time to work with us. It's, it's, this is a serious relationship we're entering. So we've made these conditions and, and everybody says, oh, my God, you can't do that. And yes, you can. We have an attitude. We're known for this. You know, but I don't need 100,000 clients. I need 100 maybe or maybe 50. That's enough. So you pick and choose. And it, it seems to work. Eric, what is the biggest challenge that you're facing now in your work? Trying to get out of it. Why? I'm trying to not retire, but um, after what I've said about clients, you know, I've, <laughs> I still now and again, I get these, so I'm 65, I get these guys half my age, like say 32 and a half, and they tend to be MBAs or whatever, and they, they more often than not have to make sure that they are the client, they are the boss, so they, you know. They Posture. stand there and they make sure that I am the, the deliverer. I'm the service person that first they let me wait for 20 minutes. So to make sure, you know, all these sort of really embarrassing and obvious tricks that these guys have, you know, not keeping appointments, making me wait, paying late and just making sure who's the boss kind of thing. That's something I, I don't want to do anymore. And I actually want to do something slowly. I'm doing everything really quickly all the time. I'm making 100 decisions a minute because I'm running, you know, 90 people, whatever you I'd like to just sit down and not write my monthly column for Blueprint in two hours on a Sunday evening. I mean, maybe just rewrite it two days later or just be on time, but take my time a little more, just have my own schedule. Maybe one morning not get out of bed at seven, which I think at my age I can maybe start doing. I've got letterpress again. I've got a couple of presses downstairs in my house. I like to get my hands dirty again. Just, you know, retiring in a way early. Well, well I, it doesn't mean I'm not going to. I know. could hardly imagine you retiring. No, as long I, I as, won't. As my, long my, as... my partners won't let me, yeah. but um, just means that I, I don't feel obliged every morning to be in the office first and go home late uh, as the last person. I'm already getting that done. And, you know, maybe reading a book during the daytime, not always at midnight. Those sort of things that, that one should be doing at, at my age, I think. Well, Eric, thank you so much for being on Design Matters. You can see more of Eric Spiekermann's work at edenspiekermann.com. And for even more, 
including that video showing just how Mr. Spiekermann gets a book down from his two-story bookshelves, visit his blog at spiekermann.com. And yes, you will see that famous harness. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica and research by Jen Simon. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. <laughs>